have good news from Korea. Welcome to the Lead Pursuit Podcast, a podcast covering Blood Red Skies, a game of World War II aerial combat. Thanks for joining us on the Lead Pursuit Podcast. Tonight, Brett and I are going to interview Mitch from the No Dice, No Glory podcast about everyone's favorite new game for Blood Red Skies, Migali. It's good to have you, Mitch. Hey, it's good to be here, man. Really appreciate you joining us. Now, we've we've alluded to Migali and a lot of the other podcasts that we've talked uh, in kind of generalities about it and talked in circles. But tonight, we want to break down what we've seen out there because you've played it some i've played it some uh brett poor guy hasn't uh, had a chance to uh, to push the models around the table yet uh but uh, we'd really like to walk through and and see what kind of things we think may change and what are some of the overriding principles of the game that will still be the same uh the thing that i'd like to open with is is most people have seen some of the cards that are out there they've seen the dramatic changes uh, to aircraft speed that i think are probably the the biggest change uh, to just how aircraft move around the board. Uh, but then there's also this, this aircraft uh, positive trait card called Jet. So we'll talk about that a little bit here in a second. But Mitch, why don't you tell me about, uh, you were up at Historicon this last weekend and you got at least a couple games in against John Russell and hopefully you beat him around the table. No, actually I didn't. I was looking forward to that. Um, you let him win? No, we actually, so as we started setting up um, four venerable grogs <laughs> that uh i know very very well one of them i used to podcast with with wwpd came and go we want to try the game so you know john and i and and john especially if you ever want to learn a game heck if i ever want to learn anything i want john russell teaching me um so we took these four guys first we took um actually no there were two other guys we took them through the game then we took these four old grogs they all love the game now also they haven't played the propeller version of the game or the original version. So they didn't have very much to compare it to, but these guys are really finicky gamers and they love You mean it. there's something other than a finicky gamer? I thought that's what we all were. Yeah. I just figured, you know, out there, you know, folks want to live <laughs> well, in that. I guess Brett, Brett, you're not a finicky gamer, right? No, not at all. I'm, <laughs> I'm not in any way finicky. <laughs> not at all at least you read the rules see now mitch uh the good thing is you know we've been able to look at some of the rules for uh, mig alley uh we don't have chris on tonight who would be commenting without having read the rules because he usually plays hasn't read the rules gets beaten around the table and then decides maybe it's time to actually read these rules i'm playing under it's always a good thing yeah especially in this case so let's let's talk about one of the big changes out there uh that jet positive aircraft trait now i'll read what it says that it gains, you can either uh, use it at the beginning of your turn to gain one advantage level if no enemy aircraft is within nine inches of it. And that's any enemy aircraft, not uh, not just another jet. Uh, but then probably the more sticky part of this card, enemies may only climb for advantage within nine inches of a jet if they're of a later generation jet. So what's this jet generation thing there, Mitch? You know, I'm glad when you asked me the question, on Facebook was it last week because I must have gone back and forth with the warlord guys about it. And, and essentially they're going to classify jets in, in really two ways. You're going to have the jet one, which is going to be the late world war two jets. And then you're going to have 
the next generation of jets, which are going to be represented by the MiG-15 and, and the F-86. Um, you know, even if you compare the jets to propeller planes and then Jet 2, you know, the later generation jets, the ones in MiG-Alley, to the earlier jets, they just outclass them. And I had a hard time with this rule. And I think a big problem I had is as soon as I started getting my miniatures together, I just had MiGs and F-86s on the table. Right. And I'm like, this just can't, this can't be right. But it just changed the way I played. So when folks out there get the game, they're going to get through some confusion too. And especially if you do Jet, jet 2 on Jet 2. Um, but it just changes the game so much. And I, you know, you've played it a couple times too. Right. What do you think? Well, and I'll tell you, I really like how the rule is written. Uh, I, I did have to you know, ask you and, you know, full disclosure for everyone listening to the podcast. There was a moment looking at these cards where it was the old, I felt like I was playing 40 K again. It was rules as written versus rules as intended. And I'm like, I'm really going to ask somebody else that has played this a couple times. If I'm reading this card, right. And, do I get it every activation? Uh, if I'm not being pressured by another jet, uh, do I get to uh, increase an advantage level? And you do. And it and it makes sense. If you step back, think about how jets have a vastly superior climb rate. Uh, and that that really plays into the second part, the, the multiple generations of jets. Because, you know, aircraft performance nerds like me go out there and you would compare a MiG-15 to even a first generation jet. Let's just say a F-80, P-80 shooting star. It had twice the climb rate. Twice. So one right. is 5,000 feet per minute. The other is 10,000 feet per minute. If you don't think that's a combat advantage immediately, uh, th then you're really not thinking through how the aircraft were used. And so I think it's I think it's a great part of the game. I think people absolutely have to figure out how do you use it to your, I hate to say it, advantage, uh, or how do you keep people from using it? Um, because I know Brett and I, when we've played just with propeller airplanes, there's always the discussion of how do you pressure someone into burning advantage? Uh, and and now when you burn advantage, you got to be careful because you may not gain it back against that jet. Yeah. And, you know, it took me a while to kind of get used to it. Um, one of the things I noticed and I saw somebody play it incorrectly this past Thursday is your wingman and staying together in a flight is so important now. <laughs> yes, it is. Not, <laughs> Because you're not going to get advantage. So you're going to look at outmaneuvering and tailing. And I think that has just become so much more important as you play the old jet game. Um, well, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it here in a second uh, in the, the later part of the episode. But I, I think jets open up another opportunity for your play style to, to be a little bit different. Uh, because Brett and I, when we've played just the first part of the game with propeller aircraft, after a while, you play four or five games against the same opponents. I think, Brett, you'd probably say that our, our tactics started becoming very similar. Say so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because a lot of times, Brett, uh, you know, we'd, we'd sneak in uh, maybe a side advantage and then everyone would, uh, would immediately burn advantage to tail somebody. And then you didn't care if you went from advantage to neutral because he was now disadvantaged. I'm up, obviously, I haven't played the new version now. And you guys have. I'm really anxious to get my hands on some models to push them around and get some reps in because I'm I'm intrigued. You guys have really got me got my interest sparked. I want to see what's different about it. It's yeah, I think that'll be the uh, the interesting part uh, here in in a couple of weeks, uh, Brett. When we get back together and have a chance to to play jets 
against each other and then you know, do as I did. I played Jets versus props, which while it was frustrating at sometimes, uh, to me it just reinforced the the good, well-written part of the Jet rules. Uh, and Mitch, I don't know if you've had a chance to play any Jets versus props and uh, club baby seals or anything like that. You know, I was thinking about doing that. Um, and I, I didn't because I, I'm going to sound like a, a total fanboy here. I was so stoked when I was, I, I've known that these were coming out for quite some time and I kind of threw all my other planes in a bag. <laughs> You're that guy. Nice work, fanboy. <laughs> I, yeah. I, uh, and I spent a lot of time painting, you know, my Messerschmitts and FWs and P51s. And I just like, oh, that's it. Bright and shiny object. I'm, <laughs> I'm all about this, this new thing. And I don't know if you guys are like me, but wait, hold on. A new thing's coming out for a game. I'm going to go read a book on the F-86 and MIG Alley and all that stuff. So I was really excited. I'm sure eventually I'll go back to the prop planes, but I don't know when that's going to be. I, I think I'm trying to reside in both worlds. But Brett, I know you had uh, a lot of questions about how to really get started modeling the uh, F-86s and the MIGs and, and what kind of decisions had been made there. I wanted to ask Mitch a little bit about his experience. You you uh, got a bunch of sabers from armaments and miniatures, didn't you? I did. Um, and I would just say not a little bit. I got 10 each. See, okay. Brett, so it's I, not a problem buying that many. It doesn't make you a bad person. All right. All right. Good. No. I'm part of the club. So tell me a little bit about the models you got. I, I've ha I have a few models from from aim and i really like them what was your experience with the ones you got for uh, your jets i love them um not my first experience with ordering stuff from um uh, david schmid that runs it you know and he even says hey you know some of the wings are a little warped i thought the models were nice i kind of got used to that uh, screw that hangs from the bottom which is also where the, the magnet fits in uh they were really good models i have to say they were the easiest thing in the world to paint I threw a, a black uh, undercoat on it. I painted them in gunmetal gray. I threw a wash on it, you know, painted the blue part. But the, the real key to make them look nice is getting the right decals. Okay. Well, that's all, that was my next question was, it sounds like you, you had a specific scheme in mind. Did you do, you mentioned you dove into some books maybe or something. Did you do some kind of research to decide on the scheme you were going to go with? Well, a lot of that really was going to another website, which I totally recommend, Miscellaneous Miniatures. And it's, um, if you ever go, have you guys gone to that site? Absolutely. Unfortunately. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that guy has everything. And, and you don't make anything. So, so I've, I've asked for uh, Taiwanese F-86 Randalls, and he'll make anything. Yeah, I think my next go is I want to get some West German uh, F-86. And then, you know, probably with the MiG you know, get some Russian, Polish, but he'll make anything. So what I ended up doing is when I got the, the, the decals and you can get, I think two sets, but it's all the same squadron. I, I was OCD enough to make sure that the tail flash number, serial number matched what was on the side of the plane. And then I went and did research of, okay, who actually flew that plane and, what artwork did they have on the plane? So I tried to do that as much as possible. And, you know, you're looking at one 200 scale. Who's going to notice? Well, I will. And I think that's what made these things look so good is those amazing miniatures, especially with that yellow uh, fuselage and, and wing um, slashes on them. 
to me, that's what makes the model pop. And I actually, I think all my stuff has miscellaneous miniatures decals on it. It's really cool. I've, I've, I think I mentioned in a previous podcast we did that for me, that was a great way to get started was I kind of started with the decals. I, I found out what was available and what to me looked the most cool and was most fitting for the time period. Maybe I was trying to do, and that's almost was the first step really for me in building. It sounds like you may have done kind of a similar approach. Yeah. I think we're all afflicted with the same disease. Now tell me about your MIGs. You, you got MIGs too, right? What would you do for those? Yeah, I really did the same thing on it. I mean, there's really no, I gunmetal gray has got to be the worst color to work with. And, you know, so I, I, and I even put it up on the, and you guys have seen my pictures on Facebook. You know, you get these guys like, that's not the proper aluminum color. I'm like, look, other than wrapping them in tinfoil, I, I don't know what to do. Oh, oh you uh, just I did the sunk same thing. into that group. I hope you understand. Be, be glad Chris is not here uh, to give us a lecture on which of the Vallejo uh, metal air uh, ones he would use. Brett, I don't know what you're planning on using, but uh, mine may be a real basic uh, platinum <laughs> that I'll then wash. Right. Well, you mentioned the color. Did you any particular brand choice that or anything you lean on that's uh, important to you for your metallic colors? I used uh, Vallejo, like I said, gunmetal gray, and then I did some highlights with the um, oily steel. Okay. They did come out a little dark, but you know, maybe I'll just have to buy 20 more jets and, <laughs> and spray paint a metallic. Sounds right. like a great excuse. <laughs> Well, if anybody out there is listening and is curious, I mean, I, like you, Mitch, I think these, you've already painted yours. I'm just anticipating painting mine, but I'm thinking, gosh, this is going to be really about as easy as it gets because, you know, they're essentially one color majority. There's no crazy, uh, complicated uh, splinter pattern camo or anything like that, really. And uh, I can certainly endorse the um, Vallejo metal colors. They're, the the range is amazing, and you're bound to find something that fits your fancy for whatever color you're looking for. If you're trying to paint color, and maybe more than that, they just they flow so great, whether it's airbrush or brush. But I'm sure Chris would probably say the same thing. He's really kind of a fan of those as well. Many many folks say those are just by far the best metal colors you can get, and you know they're they're just as available as any other Vallejo line, and they're just as inexpensive. So if anybody's wonder what what colors you use i would certainly uh point you in that direction yeah and i'll tell you what i'm happy with them but if you look at the stuff on our website i am the worst painter out of our entire crew oh good i have something in so common am, with mitch <laughs> yeah i am uh i'm like number 24 of 24 on painting which People are like, oh, it looks good. And I'm like, you just be nice. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> because if you guys ever sat down with somebody and said, you know, your models look like crap. No one ever says that. Oh, oh no, no. Sit down with Chris. He'll, 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 he will, first of all, uh, since he's not here to defend himself, he will not only wash or tone shame you, depending on which one you're using. Uh, then he'll proceed to give you the lecture on uh, which specific paint you should have bought. And you'll go, well, if I'd known that, I would have spent another $30 on paint on my $10 of models. But <laughs> he does it because he's, I mean, he has such a great array of of paint that he's tried. Uh, so for him, it's its easy to look at a model and know exactly how he wants to paint it. Oh, well, I'm just going to send my, my stuff down to him. You know what I did yesterday when I got back from the con? I kept hearing about these new Citadel contrast paints. Have you guys heard <laughs> yeah. about oh, this? Oh, you have to bring that up with Chris. Yeah. So contrast paints, I've never heard anything like those. <laughs> 
so I went to the GW shop and like most of them were sold out. And so I went and ordered a bunch of them and, um, you know, anything I can use to make them look a little bit better. I'm going to use, I'm going to, I'm going to find that shortcut. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to cheat a little. Yeah. Well, and, and we've had that discussion, I think even on the podcast that everything is a tool in the toolkit and some people have overused the contrast paints already. Uh, some people have used them really well, I think to, speed the the modeling process knowing that it doesn't solve every problem you have out there um but it it goes back to uh, chris's my and my argument about you know pin washes versus you know my uh, use of army painter uh strong tone uh my philosophy is i want to get something in those crevices real quick and i'll go back and paint with my airbrush paint afterwards and finish it all up yeah i and actually i use for the first batch i use some newlin oil yep and then for the second, I used some Vallejo gray wash. Uh, I think they turned out roughly the same. I, you know, I guess we'll have to see. And one day I'm not going to like it. And like I said, it's time for me to go to Dave and order 20 more airplanes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So any, any lessons learned from that uh, first painting experience with these, these new aircraft? Unless you have others that are painted in a similar fashion. Maybe you've got some P-51s or some. Some other aircraft. Yeah, I tell you what, that you hit it hit it on the head. I think from putting out my P fifty ones and I gave him the uh, Tuskegee Airmen livery. Once again, thank you, miscellaneous miniatures for making sure they look correct. I you know, I used the the same technique there. You know, I painted some of the noses, you know, with a little bit of the red, uh, to give it some color, especially with the MIGs. But it it's you know, these jets weren't they didn't have sexy camouflage. They kinda are, but they are. So I guess I was happy with it. I'm pretty excited to get my hands on some. I think it's going to be an easy, a quick build. So awesome. Well, thanks. Mitch. How long do you think it's going to take you? <laughs> I bet uh, it'll take Brett less than a weekend. Uh, I think give me a week. I'll probably piddle with it nightly for a week. You know, have it done over a weekend. Yeah. Cause you've already got them on order, right? Oh, no, I haven't ordered them since the uh, the molds were messed up, right? Okay, right, yeah. So, so in case anyone wants to know, if you're uh, if you're thinking of putting in an order for F eighty sixes from AIM, uh, Dave's just got to uh, repair one of the uh, one of the molds. It wasn't a damage to the actual center part of the mold where the aircraft is, but it was to kind of the pouring holes. So uh, he said, "Hey, give me a week. <laughs> we'll start making miniatures after that." Uh, so there may be a little delay. I wonder if I caused that. Probably you did ordering all of them. It's your fault. We're, we're going to blame yeah. you. Yeah, <laughs> and I think blame you should. So look, you know, if it's like the twelfth of August, and you know we sit down and play, where'd you get the twenty-two migs from? You know, well, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I, I well, you know, you reminded me. I I got to get busy because I need to get the migs before you get down here. So I, I, maybe tonight I'll place that order. Yeah, I'd, I'd drop an order just for MIGs because though that mold was fine, it was just the F-86s, and like I said, it was a almost a cosmetic repair he had to do. But he said he it would take him a couple of days before he's ready to to pour some more uh, sabers. So I don't know. I mean, you guys, we all follow the the same uh, Ready Room link on Facebook. So when the Warlord MIGs come out, they're going to be metal. Correct. You saw some people that just weren't happy about that. You know, it's funny. So Brett and I come from different hobby lineages uh, and the people who've had to endure the intro podcast in episode one, uh, they know that Brett is kind of the, I'll pick on you, you're the newcomer to uh, modeling uh, and and I'm the old guy from the Rogue Trader and, uh, you know, that era where everything was metal. 
and all of a sudden, wow, a box of plastic Marines. This is crazy. So, so to me, metal is both a comfort zone and an old nightmare. <laughs> and I don't know if it's the same way for you, Mitch, where you say, I know the techniques I need to, to put down good primer and, and a good coat on metal. But I also, there's days that metal just can frustrate you if you, if you don't do everything right. I, I, like I said, 24 out of 24, I don't really change my techniques between metal and plastic. And I know I should, but well, I think, maybe it's laziness. Well, I think what we've, we've said a couple of times on the podcast is if you, if you start resin and metal the same way with a good wash to remove all of the, the mold separation uh, powders and dusts and things like that, a, a, a good cleaning and you use a really strong, but smooth primer and, you know, yeah, I will go and, and I'll buy uh, nice modeling primers, but at the end of the day, Rust-Oleum 2X, I think Chris and, and I have agreed on. Brett, I don't know what you're using as your primer these days. I, I use a Rust-Oleum product as well. Yeah, so, a lot so of we're, probably, we're probably heathens in the miniatures industry, but uh, that works great on everybody everything. Everybody uses it. Yeah. <laughs> everybody uses it. I love Rust-Oleum. It's awesome. Uh, works great on terrain as well. Uh, so, you know, we, we put a good coat down with that and, and I've tried, I, I'll be honest, I've gone and I've used Vallejo airbrush primer. I've used a couple other modeling brands. And unless I'm putting down some custom color, um, for either 40 K 30 K, uh, infinity miniatures, something else. Um, I, I kind of go back to Rust-Oleum gray. And then if I want to do highlights, uh, which thankfully I'm not doing on the airplanes and then, then I'll do that with a, a Rust-Oleum white. Um, but that, to me, that's the key of the metal models is they're less forgiving than plastic, I think, at least in my opinion, with, uh, with how you start them. And then once you start them, they're like anything else. You're, you're painting on top of primer. Paint a fair amount of metal models for fantasy stuff and all that. And really the only challenges I've had, and I don't know that it's affected my technique so much, is it's just been, you know, they're, they're a little more delicate. It's easy to chip that paint off. Right. If you're not careful storing them or handling them, but uh, that can be mitigated to some, you know, in some ways with just a good, healthy uh, uh, gloss varnish. Yeah. Well, before, I find myself having to varnish quicker. Yeah, exactly. So, so I find myself having to force myself with a metal miniature to get it from primed to, to the base layer and painted and then a varnish layer put on there just to keep me from being the idiot I am and dropping the model and shipping the paint. That's right. I, you know, I'm writing half the stuff you guys are saying down. <laughs> it's on YouTube. You don't need to write it down. <laughs> Much smarter people than us said it. <laughs> so, I mean, do you guys use the gloss at the end? Uh, well, uh, the gloss varnish. You, you ready to strap in? We can go down some rabbit holes here. This <laughs> go is down my, the this, rabbit hole. Hit this it. is where I go. <laughs> this is Brett's. This is his whole routine. Yeah. So are we talking specifically for a metal model? I mean, I'm going to use varnish, probably multiple varnishes on any model I do, but a metal model, I'm not going to really do anything terribly different, but I don't know that you could do a, a metal model with great success. And it's, you know, keeping the paint on for a long time without doing a varnish. So, uh, let's say, let's take, uh, you know, small aircraft, I'm going to paint it, you know, I'll do a metal one, right? I'm going to, I'm going to, we talked about already uh, undercoating it, get your, get your color on. I'm probably going to gloss varnish it at that point. Then, uh, get my, uh, decals on, do my weathering. I'm going to gloss varnish again, <laughs> and then I'm going to matte varnish. And that I, I'll do that with a plastic model, but I'm, I yeah, might even do Brett multiple coats. Keeps, he keeps companies in varnish, you know, in business now. Yeah. 
I, I do it a little bit differently. Um, but what I will tell you is I varnish early, especially on a metal model, and I varnish with just brush on varnish. You know, if I am on my final varnish coats and really putting a nice even matte varnish on there, then I will get anal retentive and use airbrush varnish. Um, but when I'm just saving the the base camouflage layer before I've done anything else, it is Army Painter, you know, gloss varnish 101. And, and I've used um, as well GWR coat. I've, I've used that too because I'm just trying to get something on to hold it down. And if you're not too sloppy with it, you won't get it to haze. It's most of them are, are forgiving enough. It's protection right there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as I'm a ranger still... like Brett will tell you, protection is everything. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'm still scribbling down notes. <laughs> well, one of these days, maybe we'll actually put something out on the website other than links to our podcast. Uh, and maybe we'll put a couple of these techniques out there and hopefully uh, get a few videos uh, just walking people through. Because I mean, most of the information is is out there, but in about 300 different places. And and I know, at least for me, sometimes it's frustrating to watch somebody paint a you know 28 millimeter space marine when i'm trying to think about painting techniques for a, a 1 200 airplane but a lot of them are, are very similar and you know we've been so, talking about varnish i mean you don't have to do anything fancy you don't have like you could brush brush it on you can um you don't have to have an airbrush you can get uh, model masters uh doll coat and they have a gloss varnish that's small aerosol can it's enamel based varnish that you could use i i use that all the time if i've just got a couple of airplanes that I want to put a matte varnish on guarantee I'm, I'm holding that in my hand. I'm spraying it on my front porch, you know? Uh, but you know, if, if you, the thing like the airbrush, I think a lot of people automatically assume maybe if we're varnishing or we must be using the airbrush. Yeah. That's handy. If you've got, you know, six or 12 aircraft on your table that you're painting at one time, but that's just a time saving thing. It's the same process. It's still just spraying varnish on. Uh, but yeah, brushing, spraying, there's lots of ways you can get it, but varnish is your friend. And I think that's going to be especially true with a metal model. Awesome. Well, thanks, guys. Let's go ahead and uh, take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to delve into some of the tactical decisions that may be a little bit different in MIG Alley than what you're used to playing Blood Red Skies, propeller driven aircraft, and uh, really being able to maneuver for advantage and burn advantage at will, uh, which you'll find out in, in MIG Alley. You may not be able to get back once you've already burned it. We'll be right back. Okay, and we're back from the break. Mitch, you and I have played a couple rounds of MIG Alley for Blood Red Skies, and I think we've seen a couple different tactical executions out there. Uh, I know you were up at uh, Historicon. You were playing with both some new players, and obviously you had John there, so if you need to uh, play against someone experienced who knew the rules fairly well and understood the jet mechanics, you had him as well. What kind of tactical execution did you see? What, what did people do to exploit the abilities of the jets or to... Uh, mask some of the problems they might have well the first thing i noticed is as you come into contact everybody's at advantage because you're blazing ahead at with the mig at, at speed 13 the f-86 at speed 14 so if you're not at advantage in shooting range you you've kind of done something wrong um you know i hate head-on attacks in the game they are the worst tactical decision ever <laughs> right and and it's you know it's because if you get a boom chit you more than likely are getting one in return. I don't think that's a good trade-off. 
Um, and then coming in from the side with these jets, the guy's rolling a ton of dice. Right. Yeah. So, so, uh, trying to take a deflection shot against a jet in case you hadn't figured it out, uh, that could be 18 dice for a level four pilot in an F-86 Sabre. Good luck. <laughs> which is, oh, wow. which is, it's, it's not fun. He's dodging it. He's going so, to dodge. Just, yeah, I, I even got to the point where I rolled it in batteries of six <laughs> rather than rolling all the dice at one time. And believe it or not, on Thursday night at Historicon, deflection shot, 17 die, not a six. A <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I mean, and so that's what it comes out to. Uh, one of the things that I saw that I do when I'm playing is I don't take that front shot and I don't waste my time trying to get into a tailing position because all the enemy is going to do is, is counter that I shot past them and then tried to burn advantage beforehand to get one jet lined up on the tail. So that when I zoom forward with the other jet burning advantage, that jet, that enemy jet is already at a disadvantage and I'm, I could take a shot at that point. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And I started, and I don't know how you guys arrange your flights, um, but I usually do uh, two two ships in the four uh, ship game. That usually I put a level four pilot, a higher level pilot with a lower level pilot. I started realizing, I started grouping my higher level pilots together to move first and get that tailing shot. Um, you know, looking at the tactics when other people would try forward or slashing shots, I just don't think it's that effective. Yeah, so, you know, the slashing attacks for me did not work as well uh, when I played the jet versus jet games in a 2v2, in, in two MiGs versus two Sabres. They did work when I had four aircraft out there because there's, like you alluded to, there's a little bit of a combo you have to work there. You You need to have one aircraft be able to tail your target, knock them to that lower advantage state so the other aircraft can make a slashing attack. Otherwise, you really end up spending this game with everybody advantaged, passing each other, some poor fool being the one guy, the first guy to burn advantage, and then everybody dogpiles on him until he's shot down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, tactically, I it changed a lot. Um, I've done as many as eight jets on the table, and then I'll fly him in two, two, in two, four ships, trying to gain that tactical advantage. But you know the the MIGs, they're doing the same thing you are. And I noticed that with the higher speed aircraft, you really look at how to maneuver a lot better. I found myself using the outmaneuver. Absolutely, uh, out outmaneuver was much more important as an initiator with a jet rather than. You know, you might I might use it with props, uh, as we discussed in the in the Facebook chat. Um, you know, I might use it to initiate a head on pass with somebody. I would move my higher level skill out there, burn his pilot action to auto outmaneuver a lower skill pilot to set that individual up for a head on gun pass from my wingman. Um, but it didn't necessarily for me, didn't necessarily work out that way uh, as much of the time with the jets. Now that's also because there's the other, the negative aircraft trait card, Rough Ride, out there um, that really does handicap the MIG in certain tactical situations. So for those who haven't looked at the card, what happens is if 
a rough ride aircraft burns advantage. So if he flies past you and spins a 180 or he tries to catch you in a, in a uh, tail aspect situation where he's running you down and he's going to dive uh, to make an attack on you, um, he can only shoot that turn if they pass a maneuver test. So, you know, that could be for an average MIG pilot. That's five dice he has to roll because he's maneuver two and pilot skill three. Uh, so that that is a gamble. I mean, most of the time you'll probably get a six uh, between five and six dice. But there's a number of times that I would have MIGs purposely trying to do what we did all the time in the, in the prop world of pitch around behind somebody, turn 180 degrees and, and take a shot as you have you now tailed them. Um, but I found more than once the MIGs would get in a tailing situation and not be able to employ their weapons. Yeah, which I think is awesome in this game because the MIGs play differently than the Sabres. That negative trait, you always have to think about it. And I think Absolutely. I play the MIGs differently. I don't know if you have. So, up till so now, I but... did. I When I played the MIGs, um, I used geometry and, and, and people can say it was gamesmanship, boardsmanship, uh, the artificiality of a, of a four by four table. Um, I found myself exploiting the edge of the board more as the MIG to force the fight in a certain direction because I knew I couldn't fly right past the guy and turn 180 degrees and, and have a 100% chance of being able to tail and employ my weapons. Um, so I found myself trying to force a certain direction of turn where I didn't have to burn advantage. Um, and, you know, once again, I don't know which scenarios, uh, which baseline scenario rules you played. For the ones, for all of my scenarios, it was you leave the board, you're out of the fight. Uh, just to to force people to constrain them to the board. I think with Jets, that probably may be a negative uh, negative scenario rule. You may want to do the um, the the rule from uh, I believe it's um, the third scenario that if you leave the board, you go to high cover the next turn. Um, so it, it forces some tactical decision making. Yeah, um, I also I don't know if this if you guys have done this. I tend to play the Jets with a bigger table I, I tried to play on a four by four and it was painful <laughs> so i played on a four by six it, it is <laughs> it, it is i have two of the old um wings of glory mats and i throw them together so i i notice like you know you really are once you're getting in in you know dogfighting range you kind of stay there because if you dive off and you run off i, I don't want to leave the board and especially when you're trying to teach new players to get them excited for it, it's like, hey, yeah, I evaded, but uh, oh well, you know. It's, well, so, uh, so you yeah, bring up a really, a really good point there because that is how most of my fights ended up. They were not slashing attacks. Uh, you probably remember it back in the days when we used to talk about uh, fighting MiG-29s or other aircraft that were, were fighting in a phone booth. Um, right. They were one guy planting the flag. So whether it was a MiG or Sabre, one dude finally decided to burn advantage and planted the flag, and that's where the fight stayed. Uh, because as soon as somebody was unable to gain advantage, it at least in the in the fights that I saw, it was the ability for a jet to deny somebody the ability to regain advantage. And so rather than necessarily being finding weapons employment opportunities, you would find opportunities to move your jets back within nine inches to keep him from gaining advantage. Cause if you could keep him beat down, you could eventually shoot him down. But if you let him get outside that nine inch bubble, Oh great. Okay. He starts his turn. He gains an advantage level and guess what? We're all advantaged again. So it, it seemed like it was a little bit of a feeding frenzy. When somebody planted the flag, 
everybody went to that spot uh, and started a, a pretty quick turn. You know, and tactically, by keeping one jet at risk within nine inches of your opponent, it really screws their day up. Oh, it does. And, and there were a couple times that I made moves that I knew weren't going to result in me shooting at anybody, but it was just to keep people from gaining advantage. Yeah, and that's just how you have to play. I also noticed that I kept the MiGs in the four ship a little bit longer than with the Sabres, um, where I would break them off into two ships, and they would attack with a wingman. With the MiGs, I kept them a little packed closer together, and a lot of it is because of the negative trait. Right, right. But the other one is, I, you know, I'm willing to risk a jet just to ensure that you're not getting advantage again, because that changes what you do i mean are you going to go to negative or you're going to go to disadvantage to do a 180 turn i don't think you will right well and i think what what i saw in a couple cases was if i kept four aircraft together i could always have one aircraft kind of keeping everybody else's advantage levels from changing and the others could extend just a little bit to get where they needed to to maneuver and be able to regain advantage before they worked themselves back into the fight. Now, um, there were a lot of times that it it kind of felt like the old days when we used to joke about fighting F4 Phantoms in the F-18, uh, that it was a lot of uh, high-speed passes at the merge. Nobody turned. Everybody went out another uh, 10 miles and turned right back around. Uh, I had a couple engagements that felt like that uh, between the Sabres and the MiGs. Uh, but it was that was usually because... Um, I did not leave that fourth fighter uh, in a close uh, location to kind of pin everybody down. I got a little sloppy and I suddenly realized that uh, now all of my fighters were outside of nine inches from the majority of theirs. And so most of their guys could gain back their advantage level uh, and, and not even have to burn advantage to take a check turn back into us and be able to uh, to employ weapons. Now, one of the things I did see, too, is and uh, looking at the new trait card and the old one that's used here. It's uh, Buzzsaw, which is the new one. And the heavy hitter, right. which um, is the, what the big MIGs use, that I found myself that close that I was actually able to use those cards. So that was something that I drove myself to do was to optimize all of my attacks to use enough speed to get in range and use both buzzsaw or heavy hitter, depending which one I was using, which... To be quite honest, I the only aircraft I'd flown previously in a scenarios that had that uh, was flying mosquitoes and didn't really care, not a big deal. Um, so it, it wasn't a it wasn't a case of having to be in there and, and do that much damage. It wasn't kind of in my in my toolkit, but I suddenly realized both these aircraft have significant advantage inside of three inches, um, which kind of brings me to an interesting games mechanic piece of it. And we've always kind of laughed that trying to figure out what really is the scale. Uh, of the aircraft and, and everything maneuvering out there. Uh, the tough problem that that we continue to run into, and I think the MIG alley kind of drives you even worse, is there's a propensity for the fur balls to get really tight uh, and, and really small uh, with a lot of aircraft gr grouped in that same sky. And then, of course, if they're metal aircraft and have a larger base, um, it makes it even tougher because nobody's overlapping. So uh, that's kind of my pitch to put washers on your bases. <laughs> that way it, yeah, it gives I more maneuvering room at the merge. Yeah, and I really think you're going to have to have that happen. And you know what's weird? Well, I have found the same thing, too. Once once you're kind of in that furball, things stay there. Things get bloody. 
Um, my games weren't lasting that long. I don't know about yours. Mine were quick. I the two v twos were were over very quickly. The four v's lasted a little bit longer, and and probably that was because of just trying to do different things each time. Uh, the fastest games was a four v two, four MIGs versus two F four U Corsairs. Um, now the first time I I realized that there were ways you had to set up the scenario to give the F fours a fighting chance. Um, but even when they turned around got advantage, shot down a MIG, tried to bug out of the, uh, out of the fight. Um, they were still quick games. There was, there was not a whole lot. And, and some of that may have just been the comfort level of the people playing. Um, but, uh, I think, I think with jets, there's probably, uh, a little bit of a dynamic to get in, hit fast, kill people and be done with it. Yeah. And you've played against prop planes. I haven't. And it's interesting. It, said- it's a lot of, a lot of different tactical challenges, which, which, and I'll bring it up here, brings one of my, you know, and I always hate to say complaints because it's not a complaint. I, I really enjoy the game, but it's it's one of the things I have to think about um, because it's counterintuitive for me as a, as a former aviator. The fact that all of these jets that had really long spool up times for their engines go between full speed and minimum speed in one turn. It, it's, yeah, so I, it's sometimes it's hard <laughs> for me to wrap my brain around that, that I will have somebody, I'll have a MIG do a dive, literally move halfway across the board. And the next turn, just, he decides to burn advantage and only moves seven. And, and I go, so he's just moved seven. Then he disengages and moves 13 plus a dive again. So he just now moves 19. I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> but, but that's fine. Once again, it's, there's things we have to, as we would say, push the, I believe button. Um, for mm-hmm. mechanics, but I, th- I think that is, if I was going to pick at something that wasn't, that wasn't modeled well in the second generation jets is that they really have a hard time going between full speed and slow speed, which is why you see in so many of the reports from the, from the Korean war that the attacks happened, a guy got shot down and then everybody tried to get out of there, whether it was the MIGs or the Sabres, because you didn't just run away from the fight. It was you took time to accelerate. You had to break away. There's, there's a lot of stories of, as they've done comparisons with the, the numbers of shoot downs that a lot of the shoot downs that happened out there were actually people disengaging from the fight. And the only way to disengage was to do a big out of plane maneuver, dive for the deck, uh, trailing smoke. <laughs> and if you didn't get right. followed down, most people assumed you crashed. Um, so, so there were times that, you know, the, the aircraft, the Sabres or the MiGs probably made it home, uh, but were counted as a kill. Um, just because you saw them rapidly leaving the fight trailing smoke. Yeah, that is something that I it's I didn't notice it that much with the propeller planes. But the fact that you can, like you said, go halfway across the table, then slow down. Uh, to me, it, you know, defies physics. <laughs> oh, those pesky laws of physics. <laughs> That's fine. Brett will tell you that my airplanes usually defy the laws of physics whenever I'm using them against him. But because I found these things called loopholes <laughs> i wish my dice uh you know escaped the uh, random chance of luck yeah <laughs> not so not so fast well you know and, and the going along those lines yeah there, there's certain things that that as game mechanics you know you have to you have to accept is going to happen and another example i'll use is the fact that you look at the cards for the f86 echo model and it's firepower 2 maneuver 2 speed 14 and the f which was not a revolutionary adaptation, but it really was that bridge to to be something better than the MIG. Um, its only difference is Maneuver 3, which I find kind of funny because in the game mechanic, 
maneuver is most often used defensively rather than offensively as a skill. And so when you think about an aircraft's ability to outmaneuver somebody, you, you tend to think of it offensively. You tend to think mm -hmm. that aircraft having more maneuverability, he's going to get to a maneuver opportunity more. He's going to he's going to be able to outmaneuver more. Well, no, outmaneuver is a check on the target airplane's maneuverability. Um, so there's there's little things like that that you you sit there and you scratch your head and you go, all right, I get it. They had to make it more maneuverable because it was a more capable airplane, but that's only going to play out for me defensively. So if you if you go in and understand that that you're only going to be outmaneuvered less, you're not necessarily going to outmaneuver the MiG more. You have to you have to understand that. Yeah, I you know so when we got the the picture of the cards from uh, Richard at Warlord Games, I was surprised they included the F eighty six F because it's as you just stated, it, there's, there's no big jump here. Right. The one the one thing I was surprised at was the MiG fifteen only having a firepower of two. <laughs> I was as well, but I I can understand. I, I think I can rationalize that in my brain, but, but yeah, you, you take a look at the absolute cannon firepower of that compared to 650 cals. Um, and you look at the photos of what it did to B-29s and to, to Sabres and other aircraft. It was not insignificant. Yeah. Right. And, you know, maybe they leveled out at firepower too, because, you know, they carried less ammo, but those are two 20 millimeter cannons. And in one of the books I was reading, I think it's Wings Over the uh, Yalu, that they talked about that, you know, I wish they would have gone in greater depth because people did think that that was a limiting factor for the for the Sabre with the uh, 650 cals. And the other interesting thing I, from reading is the F-86 had a very rudimentary firing computer, which uh, the MiG, not so much. So, and you know, that's always my pitch that Andy, if you're listening, here's something you'd always think about adding. Um, you you really read the differences between the MiG and, and the F-86, and people forget the F-86 had a radar in the nose. No, it wasn't a, right. a track wall scan, go out there and find targets at 80 miles, but it that got incorporated into the gun sight. And so what you find is this first era of true avionics-driven dogfighting there were a number of the aces that said, I didn't use the radar to compute my gun solution. I just, I shot based on a, a manual sight. But you find some of the younger aces out there, and I wish I could remember uh, which F-86 pilot was that was quoted. He said, no, this was, this was easy. He goes, I'm a, you know, basically a brand new captain, had just been a first lieutenant. Uh, he goes, I just turn on the radar and I let it give me the firing solution and I pull the trigger, you know? So so having a card, having an aircraft upgrade card, such as radar computed gun sight or something like that, you know, to simulate that ability of the air crew to understand their aircraft systems that now I have a, something that's actually helping me get behind this aircraft at high speed and getting a computed gunshot. Because uh, for those that have been up there, know that that's, that's not an easy thing, especially even in a tailing situation, much less a deflection shot uh, or a rapid high speed uh, head on shot. Yeah. Well, I know very few guys that claim gun kills in training. <laughs> maybe the, the Tunisians, but that's a story I can't say here because I may want to go back to Tunisia <laughs> yeah, one time. Exactly. Don't burn those bridges but, uh, now. You know, it's like the Tunisian F5 calls gun kill on an F 15E. It's their country. You kind of have to take it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you sit there and you go, absolutely. You're right. But, you know, yeah. we, I even go back to how many times, and I'm sure you went through the same drills, cooperative gun drills, where you're really not shooting a high deflection shot. 
but you're shooting, you know, with a decent amount of, uh, of angle off, creating a closure problem. It's not easy. And you do that with a manual sight. That's, that's a lot of muscle memory to do that. And if you're, you know, a young Russian pilot, a young American pilot, who may not have a whole lot of hours in the airframe. That's kind of a tough shot to make. So. It is. And one of the things I find comical, once again, we're getting down a rabbit hole, but that's what podcasts are about. <laughs> exactly. Are the guys that for games that feature air in them. And, you know, most games, you're danger close just by being on a six by five, six by four <laughs> map. And they're like, oh, you know, this would come and take this out. And I'm like, do you know what the blast radius of a 500 pound dumb bomb is? Well, yeah, it's the, the next map board. Yeah, I was about to say, for, for those of you in the Air Force, I mean, isn't it danger close if you're actually talking to somebody on the ground and dropping? Sorry, sorry. Little Marine Corps joke there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> gotta, gotta, uh, unless they're uh, Canadians. Yeah. Oh, Ooh, hey, yeah, exactly. Well, well, you know, we always make all kinds of Ranger jokes with uh, with Brett being on there, and I think the number of times that uh, we probably scared the Rangers a few times with, as Marine Air, saying, is that close enough? Is that close enough? <laughs> as they'd been a little, a little used to Air Force Air that might have played under different rules. But you know, but I'm, te- I'm telling you that is, and go back to old experience. That's a scary thing to do, and it it, it is. You know, in real life, it, you know, I was trying to explain to somebody. You may have three seconds where you actually see your target. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's why I'm really not in any rush to test the airstrike rules. I'm I'm having as much fun just digging into the air to air piece because you know. Coming from a background where where there's an understanding of the geometry and the energy states and the, the, the decisions that have to be made, I'm finding that Blood Red Skies has a lot of those components. Sure, there's things that I can pick out and argue about, whether it's the boom chip mechanic or the ability of jets to, to go between high speed and low speed uh, at an early generation. All those things are game designer compromises. But the fact is, you still have to make geometry-based decisions. You have to say, all right, am I going to burn advantage to get in a, in a perfect tailing position? Or am I just going to take this 45-degree turn at the end of my move and be able to shoot but not put him in tail, you know? So so now we're speaking about the ground attack rules. Oh, geez. Yeah, I know. Later. Well, I got to be well, honest I- with you. I'm not all that excited about them because I think for an air-to-air game, it works. And I can forgive a lot in in the mechanics as they are, I'm really worried about seeing that ground attack stuff. And I don't know why guys <laughs> want it so much. Yeah. I, I don't know either. I think, I think it will be interesting. I think, you know, Brett and I've talked about this. We talked about what is the real scale of, of the surface targets that, that are out there. And Brett, you know, what did we come up with that we wanted to buy, you know, buildings and ships and trains for, I think we said something at like one nine hundred scale. And I think between one and 700 and one to 1400. Yeah. So, so, so we're like, well, it's not going to be any fun because there's not going to be any detail of the targets to begin with. (laughs) So I might as well bomb a a sticker or a counter that's on the board. Um, But I'm sure there'll be some, some interesting interface as you, you know, might have a scenario where there's aircraft providing close air support or doing an interdiction mission and sure they get jumped. Um, But, you know, for me, I'm really enjoying the dogfighting part of it. And even between playing a number of times uh, down in Jacksonville with Brett and the guys, playing up at Adepticon with John, um, playing a couple games around Beaufort, I, I haven't run into any point where I'm like, all right, the game's boring. I've seen everything. I keep finding right. Yeah, I still want to get a bunch of reps in. I want to come up with some new, you know, just goof around with some crazy scenarios. I'm already thinking we probably need some B-29s for Korea, right? 
Oh, good. So you're volunteering to buy those. Excellent. Thanks. I wasn't <laughs> going to pick up any more models. So Armaments and Miniature do make those? Uh, just shut up. Don't mention that. <laughs> Actually, they make, con- so they, was... they make condors, too, on a side note. We need to... <laughs> <laughs> to play Scourge of the Atlantic, I think. We do, we do. And, you know, one of the references I went to that was actually a a, a great reference. Most people, um, you know, may not have gone out there and, and looked at some of the, the alternate books that are out there. Because I think a lot of times we talk about uh, going out and pulling down the Osprey books. Um, but there's a number of Russian accounts that are done... Um, that are uh, are all Russian authors that are great stories, and one of them was uh, Super Fortress, or Last War of the Super Fortresses, MIGs versus B-29s, written by two Russian authors. Um, and it's a really good account of all the things you didn't realize about um, MIGs trying to get in and trying to play the cat and mouse game to have to go fight a Super Fortress, because it's bad enough they had to play cat and mouse between the Sabres and, and the Shooting Stars and everything else, and then they have to get in close with, you know, a... a uh, a bomber that's got a lot of 50 cals on it, a lot of capability to defend itself. Um, and and those accounts are pretty interesting. So it, it made me sit there and go, I think I really want to do a B-29 mission here soon when we come up, make some homemade stats for it. Yeah, I, uh, damn, I'm going to hit the website now and look for it. <laughs> but one of the books I picked up, which I recommend to folks, is called Red Wings Over the Yellow. Right. I, it's a, you could pick it up on Amazon. Yep. I, it's in I my it uh, Amazon uh, books. That's that's a good one. And there's a new one coming out. It's it's um, Mig Alley. Um, it's coming out in November, which is going to be too late for us because we'll be, you know, making up our own rules by then. But Red Wings over the Alu, and you know, I'm reading it, and I I always knew about Russian participation, and you know, it's it, looking at how much they, how many pilots they threw into that mix. Um, and some of them talk about those B-29s. I mean, the worst day for B-29s in the history of, you know, air war was in Korea. Right, right. It's it's interesting. The, the Russian authors uh, that in the Super Fortress book do a really good job of comparing U.S. losses to, um, to Russian slash North Korean losses and, and comparing... Uh, where there's a lot of inconsistencies and and they make no bones about it. They're like, who knows? <laughs> Here's what each side reported. Um, you know, and we, and we think both of them are wrong. I think there's a great quote at the beginning where it, it reads off the description of the, uh, from the Russian pilots of going out and shooting down, you know, seven B 29, six sabers, all this other stuff. And they say, well, and now we'll come back to the real world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they talk about that, that nobody really knew how many aircraft were getting down on the side. I mean, you can always trust the Russian after action report. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, they're, they're probably as well done as uh, the Air Force ones where we had an airman typing it, putting the wrong date on and, you know, filing it uh, three weeks late. So uh, everybody's casualty numbers got all lumped together. Well, you know, look, if we want to stretch the truth, flight hours. Yeah, exactly. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, just put me down for a 5.0. Exactly. What do I need to make my mins? Yeah. You know, you were eating lunch for most of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, don't make fun of what we do in the backseat. That's hard work. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's rough. It's rough back rough there. Work. One question, like, folks have been asking us. Yes. I don't know if they've been asking you guys, but everybody seems to want, you know, they come out with Korea. Guys want Vietnam the next month. 
I I don't know how the these rules would work with missiles with BVR fights. I, I to me and John and I John, you know, I'm throwing you under the bus. We were talking about it like you know, I'm not looking and I told him I'm not looking forward for the ground attack. To me that's just not sexy, but I don't know if these rules are going to really work for that next generation. I don't know how you guys think about it. Is it something you want or? So remember what color I was painting my F-86s? Republic of China Air Force. Hmm? Right. Who who might have been the first combat use of the AIM-9? Republic of I China Air it Force. Was. <laughs> yeah. So um, if you if you ask Doug's party line, I think the rules could be adapted. Um, now, there is absolutely a limit to to what the rule system can take. Can it take 40 mile BVR engagements in a weapons free, no rules of engagement kind of mindset? No, it's not written for that at all. Could it deal with within visual range use of missile? I think it can. And so now Andy is going to throw a million of his considerations that he's already thought about at me. Uh, and so he'll beat me up when we interview him on the podcast. Well, you guys are going to interview him <laughs> well before that. You know, actually, he has a, an invite to the Pentagon next month to play MIG Alley with the guys I work with. Um, I, do, I don't know how that's going to work out, but he's there. I don't want him that mad at me. <laughs> I think it will work fine, but that's all right. And, and I, um, I don't say that lightly. I think, uh, I think there's some considerations, like a lot of things you'll have to um, game designer away a few real world scenarios, but I think it, it'll also open up some interesting tactical uh, questions. I mean, think about the ability. What if you can now influence the high cover? So, so what if you can pitch out of a fight and if you are advantaged, you now have the ability to make a infrared missile shot against aircraft in high cover. That's, yeah. that's going to change some high cover decisions all of a sudden. Um, and so yeah. there's, there's a lot of uh, different, uh, different things you could think of, but um, Far from being a game designer, uh, I'll leave a lot of that to Andy, but I think there's some things that we shouldn't assume away, um, but knowing that it's not going to simulate uh, F-15s meeting up with MiG-29 shooting BVR at long ranges with extended range missiles. <laughs> what size would that table have to be? Pretty much my garage floor, I think. <laughs> you know, I don't know if you guys ever played the old Fletcher Platt, Pratt naval system. No, no. They played it on a gym floor. Yeah, I... <laughs> And even then they said it was way too, you know, no, we have to get bigger. And I'm like, wow. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm excited for the game where it is now. I think it's pretty neat to go into Korea. I think, and Andy, if you're listening, this is a plus plus here. I think people are going to love the jets. I think the jets are really going to take off. And hopefully, because I asked John Russell, the question, are we going to see squadron boxes for the jets? Or do I have to keep buying, you know, for $32, the same, you know, 2v2 box? And, you know, he, he really didn't know. But I, I think folks are really going to dig this. I know a lot of guys that were just waiting for the Jets to come out. And they're extremely happy. Because if you, if you look at dogfighting in U.S. history, you know, MIG Alley is just one of those it's places. Where, yeah, it is where it was at. It is where the legends, whether they're true or not, like most legends, uh, but where the legends were started. And yeah, and this, go ahead, I'm sorry. I was just gonna say that, you know, a lot of, a lot of these aces already were aces in World War II and they found they had to adapt and change. And so it's, 
it's fascinating to read some of their accounts where you had individuals who may have shot down 40 enemy aircraft uh, as a member of the Great Patriotic War. And then all of a sudden against F-86s, they are fighting tooth and nail uh, to make their MiG uh, you know, really match up that aircraft. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I like it. I think that there's a lot that they can do there. Um, you know, I'm going to sound like some folks online. You would be interesting to see the vampire, uh, the F9F Anther. I, th- I think those would be would be very interesting to see. And I think, um, you know, I always feel bad for Andy because it becomes a question of trying to be honest with the statistics or uh, take everyone's favorite airplanes and make them fun and playable. Uh, and sometimes uh, the two don't always match up because I certainly would love to use vampires, but I also realize that they probably will get clubbed by anything uh, much more maneuverable than a MiG-15. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, all these guys, you have to have the meteor. You have to have the meteor in the plane. You know, as a guy that has 10 F-86s, I'd love to play against you and your meteor. Yeah, exactly. Please let me do that. <laughs> yeah, now I understand. Now, I'm excited. I just think this whole thing and is, and you guys are also longtime gamers. Like, look at the treatment Korea is finally getting from Warlord Games. Absolutely. And that's, that to me is the refreshing piece is that people aren't really handling it as World War II plus. They're, they're really building some dedicated uh, rules and campaigns uh, and systems to try to model it, uh, to make it fun, but to still make it feel different than another World War II battle. Yeah, the the book that John, you know, John actually helped write the Bolt Action Korea book with Steve Smith and the love they put in there and interviewing them a year ago when I'm like, yeah, Korea, I, I just don't know. And then from reviewing the book and, and proofreading it, it's it, it's finally getting the, the it's due, it's due diligence. Absolutely. And I think folks are going to like it and the blood red skies crowd will really enjoy it well and i think that's the the piece that we have to realize with blood red skies is what we've really kind of opened a can of worms uh with mig alley uh and adding jets but let's not just think about it as u.s versus russian or north korean migs it gives you the ability to model a lot of fights around the world uh without infrared uh, air-to-air missiles but you know gun only jet fights early on in the jet age uh that where it wasn't necessarily uh, the technology being the discriminator, it was still the man in the box. It was who could take that jet uh, that was probably underperforming uh, and max performant to outdo their opponents. Yeah, so I, I'm going to go order some more MiGs and um, F-86s. I want to do, so he, um, Miss Miscellaneous Miniatures is making you Taiwanese F-86 <laughs> decals? that and Pakistani F-86s, so I just showed my hand there. <laughs> All right, so I, I'll do West German. I mean, everybody in the world uses those planes, yeah. and I'll figure something for the MiG-15s. And Brett and I were talking about it. I know I think we're going to do a couple what-if scenarios and, and do those kind of things because it's fun. It allows you to paint up uh, some you know, West German F-86s and pit them against Russian MiGs in a, in a uh, fold-a-gap scenario. <laughs> That almost that almost happened. Yeah, so it it's uh, it, it's a good opportunity to to really do with the game what you want, and and I think I I can't say that enough to people who kind of you know, we talked about in the last podcast. They buy the box set and they go, well, what do I want to do with it? And I'm like, I don't know. If if you wanted to model uh, the Israeli uh, Me 109 shoot down of an Egyptian Spitfire, you could do that dogfight. 
Um, because guess what? Both those planes are in the game. Uh, and that would be something that happened well after World War II. I wanted to go in, through life and not having to do that. Now I'm going to go do it. <laughs> exactly. So, well, that, that was one that I'd I'd put out of my mind until I was uh, I was digging through aviation art uh, today, and I'm like, oh, I even forgot about that. Yet another scenario where I could use the aircraft that I'm given in uh, in uh, blood red skies and play a totally different air war. You've been, yeah. you've been a Renaissance man for, since you opened that box. Sorry. Yeah. I, I'm a history nerd. I am a history nerd. And, you know, Mitch, you'll, you'll find out when uh, we first meet up on the table, I don't put more than two airplanes in the same paint scheme out there because I just enjoy painting a bunch of different planes, uh, you know, for the, for the same model and seeing what other air arms uh, really had out there. So you got to throw those things out on the website. Uh, we, well, um, I got to get them all painted too. That's the other problem. So, so I mean, I'm your like, look, all my planes kind of look alike of this, the same class and you know, they look close, but I mean, I appreciate guys that, that do that. And you know, it's that OCT and that history fan of me. That's like, I want them to look as authentic as possible based on my skill. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and that's totally where I am. Cause I finished up Pappy Boynton's uh, F4U Corsair and you know, there were compromises. I'm sure everyone laughed as I threw the four bladed prop on it, but it's what I had stolen from, uh, from Chris and Brett while we were down in Jacksonville together. Oh, <laughs> you were the guy that said this is a F4U four model. Yeah, exactly. It's a, a secret, secret uh, employment of the F4U four early. <laughs> and I gotta be honest with you. I didn't. I'm like, what is he talking about? <laughs> I there's always and grognards. Like, there, there's grognards that are gonna go. I'm sorry. Th those were three bladed props. You're right. I didn't have any large three bladed prop discs for in acrylic. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So yeah, all my uh, prop discs are three bladed. I get them from Litco. So yeah. and, and I like the Litco ones for the small aircraft. I will say though, the the larger ones. What are they, Brett? Thirteen millimeter. 14, 14 for the fighters. Yeah. Yeah. The, those are the gold standard. Uh, Litco are great for the stuff in the box set. Um, but then go out to, uh, and, and Brett's got the info. We've put it out on the website a couple of times. Um, go out to those guys and get their custom uh, 13s and 14s. Cause you get them in three blade, four blade, whatever your grognard heart desires. <laughs> Count the rivets. Boy, I hate to tell you what's on my uh, target B-17 in Lancaster probably 10 mils like a very underpowered yeah <laughs> yeah it's three bladed that's all right you know we'll survive we, we won't hold it against you when we shoot you down i will not <laughs> take those anywhere you guys are going to be well, I, well and just in case you didn't hear the last episode uh chris doesn't even do prop discs on his uh his inline engines he he looks at them for radials but uh, for most of the other aircraft he's like i don't like prop discs i i, I don't want to see it so everybody's got their own uh, preference which is good which is the great thing about a hobby like this it is. Well, thanks for taking the time. I really uh, appreciate it. Uh, it's been good to talk through some of the things we've learned with MIG Alley. Uh, Mitch, I know we probably are going to jump back on the podcast uh, a week or so from now and talk about a few more things uh, as we get closer and closer to the release. But thanks for taking the time to uh, talk through your experiences at Historicon, what you'd seen and how you'd played the game, as well as the hobby decisions you'd made when you were painting them, what paints you used, what techniques you used. Because I know Brett has been uh, super interested in that. We've been waiting to pick people's brain about uh, what kind of uh, jet armies they want to field out there and how their air forces are going to be painted up. Anything uh, you'd like to throw out in closing? No, thank you guys so much. I mean, it's I've been a fan. 
I've uh, listened to all your episodes. Awesome. That's not and, hard when you've only had a few. <laughs> yeah. I haven't dug through all and, of your back episodes yet, so <laughs> I'm working on it. Well, number 42 hits tomorrow night. Um, but just, you know, from talking to Storicon, and I should have brought this up earlier, uh, I threw out saying, hey, as you're driving up to Storicon, listen to these guys. And some guy came over and was like, those guys are very excited about the game. This He went and bought it. <laughs> Just, just because just from listening to your podcast and he's like i can't i can't wait to play this this and that and uh he's like those guys are awesome and and just the other folks that said yeah it's a, it's a you guys are throwing some excitement into this game which i love and once again thank you guys so much and hey we'll have you on ndng sometime absolutely sounds good brett any anything from you uh in parting shots oh just um you know, I'm happy to uh, get some reps in on the game, and uh, in the meantime, I'll I'm gonna, you know, keep nugging out some good hobby stuff in the hopes of helping some folks with that too. Absolutely. Well, thanks, guys, and thanks everyone for listening to Lead Pursuit Podcast. Uh, episode six will be coming up, and it will not be talking about Mig Alley, other than maybe a few more release details. But we'll get back to our a lot more of our hobby help. Uh, a little bit of our tactics discussions, uh, and then trying to really recenter the game on the World War II aspect that a lot of people have been playing. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. <laughs>